This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Matthew chapter 7, we are nearing the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Today we're looking at verses 21 through 23. Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Hear the word of God. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Let us pray. Father, as we take up the study of this portion of your word this morning, we pray that you would not only enable us mentally to understand this passage, but also, Father, to feel its due weight in our hearts, the seriousness of it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Life can be boiled down to answering one question. Where will you spend eternity? You think about it, of the span of a life with all of its ups and downs, its highs and lows, its pains and pleasures, what else is as important as the answer to the question, where will you spend eternity? Of course, the question has only two possible answers. You will spend eternity in heaven, or you will spend eternity in hell. If you are in hell, it will be because of your sins against a holy God. If you are in heaven, it will be by the grace of God in providing a Savior who loved you, who died for you, and of God's giving you the faith to believe in Him and be saved. Now, of course, everyone wants to be in heaven. No one wants to be in hell, uh, at least no one in his right mind or no one with uh, any kind of biblical understanding of what hell is. So everyone wants to be in heaven. But the problem is this. There are a great many people who think that they will be in heaven, who think that they are headed to heaven, who are in for Quite a shock. Now, as Jesus is wrapping up the Sermon on the Mount, he takes up this question, where will you spend eternity? And he wants to emphasize to us the importance of answering that question, of knowing where we will be, of making sure that we are, in fact, in his kingdom and that we will, in fact, one day 
be with him in heaven. Now, he's been doing that all the way we go back a couple of uh, uh, paragraphs here, a couple of weeks as we've studied it, back to 13, where Jesus says to enter by the narrow gate. Uh, That is to believe in him. He himself is the gate. He's the door. He is the only way by which we are able to enter into the kingdom and enter into salvation. And having entered, he calls us to walk the more difficult path of faithful discipleship following him, the pattern of which has uh, been portrayed before us in this Sermon on the Mount, rather than simply going with the flow and living in the indulgence of our sins and fallen nature. He uh, warned us, as we saw last time, of the danger of being deceived by false teachers, wolves, in sheep's clothing, who prey on the sheep. And now, he warns us against another kind of deception. Kind of deception this time that comes not from without, but from within. Deception that comes not from others around us, but arises within our own hearts. And the warning that Jesus gives to us here is this. Do not count on the wrong things to give you assurance of your salvation. Do not count on the wrong things to give you assurance of your salvation. What are those things? What are the things that we should be careful not to rely on or put our confidence in? What are the things that we should look to? What are the things that we should uh, look at as evidence that we are in the kingdom? Well, Jesus tells us in these verses. First of all, Jesus tells us here, do not put your confidence in your religious talk. Do not put your confidence in your religious talk for assurance that you are in the kingdom and that you are going to heaven. Look at verses 21 and verse 22. Not everyone, Jesus says, who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And on verse 22, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord. The emphasis here is on what is said. Uh, And this is true whether the talk, what is being said, is said to Christ, as it is here, or said to others about Christ. Everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord. Now, one thing is certain. We do need to make a verbal profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, an oral announcement or declaration of our faith in him. Romans chapter 10, verse uh, 10 is quite plain about this when it says, for with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Now, by God's grace, we believe in Christ in our hearts and are justified, that is, When by God's grace we believe in Jesus as our Savior, God justifies us. He declares us to be not guilty on the basis of Christ having atoned for, paid for our sins. And he also declares us righteous in Christ as just as our sins are imputed to or credited to Christ and he dies for them. Christ's righteousness is imputed to or credited to us. So we're not merely not guilty, but we are declared righteous before God on the basis of Christ's righteousness, his obedience. Now, when that happens, we are 
justified, as, as Paul says here. And we also then go on to confess or to declare our faith in him with our mouth, publicly, to others. You can't just say in your heart, well, I believe in Jesus, but I'm not about to tell anybody else about it. You have to make known that faith with your mouth. And I would, I would suggest, and I think Paul would agree, that if you have truly become a Christian, then you'll want to tell others. You'll be compelled to tell others. And then even to join this church, when you meet with our elders, you, in addition to giving a testimony of your faith in Christ, not only how you got there, but that you are, in fact, trusting in Christ as your Savior, you answer the vows of the PCA uh, that in which you indicate your trust in Jesus, your recognition that you are a sinner, your need of Christ, and your, your faith in him. And so confessing Christ as Lord, certainly to him and to others, to his church, to the world, is vital. Vital part of our salvation. And it's also true that no one can make a sincere profession of their faith in Jesus alone. And we were talking earlier in the Explorers class, if we've been going through... Uh, uh, reviewing the, uh, the, the five points of Calvinism, the tulip. We talked about that last week. The first one of which is total depravity. The fact that sin has so affected us, our fallen nature is so dead in sin, it is dead in sin, that we cannot respond to the gospel. And that's why Paul says no one can say, in 1 Corinthians twelve three, no one can say Jesus is Lord, and he means Sincerely meaning it from the heart, not just mouthing words. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And so a verbal profession is important. And it's also something, if genuinely uttered, is, is done so because of the work of the Holy Spirit. But did you notice the order in Romans chapter 10, verse 10? Where Paul says, with a heart one believes and is justified, with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Do you notice the order? Believe in the heart, then confess with the mouth. True belief, then sincere confession of Christ. Now, getting back to our passage, the danger Jesus describes here is for people who have confessed him with the mouth, but have never really truly believed on him in the heart. These are people who... Uh, may have what we might describe as a mere intellectual agreement with Christian truth, but do not have transformed lives by Christian truth and by the power of the Holy Spirit. People who would never think of questioning the doctrines of Scripture, the confession, the catechisms, the creeds, would agree with it, wouldn't think of, of, of doubting it or questioning it, and yet their hearts are not regenerate. It's a merely, uh, merely a head knowledge, merely a head faith, if we want to put it that way. And yet their heart and their lives have not been changed. Now, Lord, Lord is what's being said here. Addressed to Jesus, but could also be addressed to others. Jesus is my Lord. But Lord, Lord being spoken to Jesus. John Stott, in his uh, commentary, makes several observations about this confession, this confessing but ultimately lost person. He notes in the first place that what they say is polite. They address Jesus courteously as, as Lord. Our Lord. My Lord. The Lord. 
uh, very polite, not disrespectful, uh, not, not, certainly not blasphemous, but quite courteous, respectful toward Jesus. It's polite. Second, he notes about this, what they say, Lord, Lord, it's orthodox. Orthodox simply means it's, it's right thinking. It agrees with what the scriptures teach. The term is kurios, uh, and it could be translated merely as sir. That would be a way of translating it, if the context was, was correct, of simply addressing someone of higher rank or higher position, someone you're showing, uh, to whom you're showing respect as sir, this would be the word it's used. However, in this context, as in many others in, in the New Testament, the word kurios is... Uh, loaded with much more meaning than simply being polite, simply saying, sir. Uh, It signifies Lord as a divine title. And we know that because in the Old Testament translation, uh, Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, the word Yahweh or Jehovah, the name of God, is rendered by this Greek word kurios, Lord, which carries over to our English Bibles where that name is translated Lord with with small caps in our English Bibles. And so in the context, this is more than merely saying, Sir, this was the term by which Jesus' followers, after his death and resurrection, named him. And so when they say, Lord, Lord, they are ascribing full deity to Jesus. They are giving him his, his biblical due. It's an orthodox, right confession of who Jesus is. It's polite. It's orthodox. Uh, John Stott notices also that it's fervent. It's just not a mere cold and formal Lord, yes, my Lord. Uh, But it's warm, it's zealous, it's repeated. Lord, Lord, expressing devotion, expressing passion. But in spite of this, it's polite, it's fervent, it's orthodox. It's also not enough. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. You see, we cannot put confidence, as far as our assurance of salvation goes, in the fact, necessarily, that we've made an oral, verbal profession of faith in Jesus. We can't rest with assurance on the fact that we talk to others a lot about Jesus, or that we speak his name often. That's what Jesus is saying here. We can't put a a, a great deal of weight on even that we pray to him. We may be in for a rude shock on the last day. So that's the first thing that we learn here. The first thing that we should not rely on is our religious talk, that we speak to Jesus, that we take his name on our lips, that we profess faith in him to others, that we claim to be Christians to others because we may be in for a very bad Surprise! if that's what we're counting on. Well, there's a second thing that Jesus warns us against here. Uh, Do not put your confidence in religious activity. Do not put your confidence for your assurance of salvation in your religious activity. And look at what Jesus says in verse 22. On that day, as the day of judgment, the day of reckoning, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name. You see, these people are standing before the judge, before Jesus, and they're making their case why they should be accepted 
with Jesus in light of what he just said in, in verse 21. And they do so on the basis of the things that they have done. Notice what they say. Some pretty amazing, some, some uh, pretty astounding things. Did we not prophesy? In other words, did we not speak for you? Did we not utter revelation? Did we not cast out demons? You know, wow. You went to head to head with the prince of darkness and won. Well, that must count for something. Did we not do many mighty works? Uh, the term mighty works referring to miracles, things like uh, making blind eyes see, making lame people able to walk, those kinds of things. Well, surely, surely, Jesus, if we've done these kinds of things, we're going to heaven, right? There's more. It's not just what they've done. Notice also that the, in addition to doing these, these marvelous works, they did them in Jesus' name. In fact, three times that phrase occurs, in your name. Did we not prophesy in your name? Now, in fact, in the original, in the Greek, that phrase comes first each time. In your name did we not prophesy. In your name did we not cast out demons. In your name did we not do many mighty works. In fact, it seems almost as though they're not pointing so much to what they did as it is the fact that they did it for Jesus' sake. For His name. In His name. Claiming His power. For His sake. Surely such a person as that. person with such power. person with such devotion is heaven-bound. Maybe, but maybe not. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 24, verse 24. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. You see, the apostles did prophesy, they cast out demons, they performed mighty works by the power of God. But there were others, you can read about them in the Scriptures, in the Bible, in the, in the Gospels, in the book of Acts, who do the same kinds of things, only their power wasn't from God. You see, the signs in themselves, the works in themselves, are ambiguous. Even that they did them in Jesus' name is ambiguous. Remember the seven sons of Siva in the book of Acts trying to cast out demons. Jesus I know, Paul I've heard of, but who are you? And they took a beating. They couldn't do it. Well, in our context, we might say, Did I not in your name preach a biblical, solid, biblical sermon every week? Did I not in your name teach a Sunday school lesson from Great Commission Publications material every week? Did I not in your name attend church every week? Did I not in your name go out and debate atheists? Did I not in your name minister to the poor? Did I not in your name start Christian schools and hospitals and missionary societies and do all kinds of good things? Surely Jesus must be impressed with people who do those kinds of things or even to do these kind of supernatural things, right? How impressed is Jesus? Well, verse 23 tells us. And then I will declare to them. 
I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. You know that feeling you get in your stomach when bad news comes. You know, maybe it's a letter from the IRS. Or it's the, um, you know, the doctor who comes out and says, uh, uh, with, with test results in hand, I'm afraid I have some bad news. But dear friends, I cannot imagine that there would be any more horrifying words that any human being could ever hear than these spoken by the Lord Jesus. I never knew you. Go away, you sinful man, you sinful woman. Horrifying. Because when you hear them, you know no mistake has been made and there's no second chance. And the door closes forever. Religious activities, all these things are good things to do, but they're not the evidence that you rely on for your assurance of salvation. If you do, you may be in for a horrifying shock. Well, what is it then? What do we look for? What are those things that can give us assurance that we do belong to Christ, that we are his, he is ours, and we are heaven bound? Well, Jesus also tells us that in this passage. Our confidence should rest on sincere faith in Christ that proves its reality by obedience to Christ. Our confidence rests on sincere faith in Christ that proves its reality by obedience to Christ. And that's what he says. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And notice the basis on which these people who did these things are rejected. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You sinful, disobedient People, that's the basis on which they are rejected. Jesus doesn't say what they did was wrong or bad, but they are rejected on the basis of the character of their lives, their lawlessness, their refusal to be in submission to the word of God and the way that they lived, the way that they spoke, the way that they interacted with other people. Now, when Jesus says this, the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven is he talking salvation by works? That we somehow just have to be good enough? No. All scripture says no to that. One particular point, Galatians 3.11, couldn't be plainer. Where it says, now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. Jesus isn't saying we're saved by our obedience. We are, as the scriptures teach, saved by God's grace. Through the death of Christ for us, the righteousness of Christ given to us that we have received by faith. That's the basis on which we're saved. But what Jesus is saying is that people who have that sincere, biblical, real, God-given faith in Jesus will live obedient lives. They will live changed lives. They will live different from the world. If we have believed in Christ, if you have believed in Christ, 
from a regenerate heart, a new heart, your life will be different. Different from what you were before you became a Christian, especially if you became a Christian as an adult. And different from the way other non-Christians, unbelievers around you live. Different from the world, in other words. Your life will be different. Different how? Well, as Jesus says here, we obey him. We obey him. We obey him not to please others. We obey him not to make your pastor happy or your Sunday school teacher or your mother or your father happy. But rather, you obey him because he died for you. You obey him because he rose for you. You obey him because he is our rightful king, not Satan. We obey him because he is almighty God. We obey him because we love him. Jesus said in John 14, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. How many people out there today, how many people in here today would profess to love Jesus and yet have very little, if any, concern to keep his commandments? This passage may be talking to you. Because Jesus said, if you love me, if you really do love me, if you've experienced my grace, if you love me because of that, you will keep my commandments. You will, in other words, obey me and obey me from the heart. That's the difference. Some of you may remember in our studies of the Sermon on the Mount early on how Jesus said back in in Matthew 5, how unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Remember that? Like in Matthew 5. In some ways, that's a very difficult thing to accomplish. A very tall order if our goal is to please other people with our religiosity. You'll be hard-pressed to match the scribes and Pharisees, let alone exceed them, for mere outward formal religious activity. An appearance of obedience. If that's your goal, you'll have a hard time exceeding the scribes and Pharisees because it was their life to be outwardly obedient. They didn't care a thing about their hearts, but outwardly, they put on a good show. You'll be hard-pressed to exceed them. But it's an easy task. Even a small child could do it if... By exceeding their righteousness, we're talking about the heart. Just trust in Jesus for your salvation. And obey him because you love him. And you have far exceeded the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. That's what Jesus said. Unless your righteousness exceeds theirs, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And he goes on to talk about what real righteousness is. It's not pleasing people. It's not nitpicking over little external details with no regard for the condition of the heart before God. It is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and out of love for him, to follow him, and to obey him. But someone will say, but I still sin. Well, yes, you do. Of course you do. Every Christian still sins. But the question is this, do you hate your sin? Do you look with loathing, not so much at the sins in other people, but the sins in your own lives? Do you look at your own sin and see there 
the nails that held Jesus, the cords that bound him, the thorns that tore him, the spear that pierced him. Do you ever look at your sins, the sins of your heart, the waywardness, the difficulty of reigning in your heart? Do you ever look at the sins in your life, somewhat as God might see them, and weep? Do you turn from your sin to the cross and see there the assurance of your salvation? See there the accomplishment of your redemption? Do you want to obey Jesus? Is that something that is attractive to you? Something desirable? Even if it means putting to death, painfully so, the dearest idols of your heart? You see, that's what Jesus is talking about here. That's a good sign. Well, I'll leave you with an observation and a question uh, about this text. The observation is this. Jesus is talking about a self-deceived group of people, and therein lies the difficulty. These people do not see the danger they're in until it's too late. They think they're okay. They think they're doing well. They seem to say the right things, to do the right things, but they're just as hell-bound as if they didn't. The tragedy here is that they are genuinely surprised when Jesus rejects them. They used his name a lot. He doesn't even know theirs. Never did. And they're astonished. That's the observation. That's the danger. The danger is self-deception. The danger is you are in danger and don't see it, don't know it. Which calls for crying out to God for his light, for his help, to see your condition as it really is. To measure where you are, not by other people around you, not by what you like to think about God, but by what the Bible actually says. question that I would leave with you is this. Are these self-deceived persons a large number or small? Be a lot of people like this, a lot of people surprised on that day, or maybe just a few in number. Well, Jesus himself, in this text, answers that question. Many. He doesn't give a figure. He doesn't say if it's the majority or minority. He simply uses the term many. Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, no small, huddled, negligible group, this. Whatever the proportion, whatever the actual number, Jesus can describe this group as many. Many will say to me, many. From now on, your life's business is to make certain you're not one of them. Let's pray. Father, this is a frightening passage because by its very nature, these people do not see their true condition until it is exposed on the day of judgment. Father, I pray for myself, one who labors in the Scriptures every day, one who, by very definition of his title, represents you to others. One who speaks weakly from your word, that I would not be deceived as to my true condition. Lord, I pray, certainly pray, to be one of your regenerate, forgiven children. 
And Lord, I pray for these in front of me. I pray, Father, that you would give each one of them the grace to see themselves as they really are. And Lord, certainly, certainly, many, many believers, many who love you, trust in you, who do want to obey you. And Father, let them see the fruit of that faith in their lives and the assurance of your, your salvation by the testimony of the Spirit within and the Word of God before. But Father, I cannot doubt, but in a room this many, that there will be those who are heading toward this declaration that Jesus makes. But these words will be all too familiar on that day when they hear them. Father, I pray, I plead with you for them, that you would give them the grace, give them the light to see themselves as they really are. I fear, Father, that there will be those in this room, apart from your gracious intervention, to their own shock and consternation, who will hear these words. And Lord, I pray by your grace that you would save them, truly and genuinely, life-transformingly save them before that day. That we all, Lord, might hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your Lord. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.